play, play. Whatever's in my heart. Welcome, welcome, y'all, to Dancing on Desks. I'm your storyteller, Monet. And I'm Erin. We're so glad that you've made the decision to join us once again. And we have such a delicious episode for you. Um, but first, how are you doing, Erin? I'm doing, I'm doing well. It's the most beautiful day today, which is which is funny given that we're recording this in our like makeshift little blanket forts that we always make to to record, you know, like I closed the shades and like closed every door to block sound, but outside it is, there's like not a cloud in the sky. It's like the perfect, beautiful day right now. How about you? I know you're home with your family. Yeah. I'm in Georgia. I I came home to surprise my mom for her birthday. My mom was born on Easter. And so this is one of the years where Easter occurs on my mom's birthday. So it's a really special birthday for her. And uh, I can't wait to get outside. Usually when I'm home, I go walk in with my my parents. So I just go for walks by myself. I'm eager to do that. Put on some Sid. Sid just dropped a new album. So going to put that on and, and go for a walk. One thing we should tell y'all ahead of time about this episode is that usually we have resource room or we have what I don't get paid for. We won't have that. And because we wanted to just really allow more space for us to hear the voices of two groups of folks who are doing incredible, liberatory, grounded work outside that's specifically connected to learning. You know, Monet, as we were crafting this episode and starting to think about building our season and this episode, we talked a lot about the the school that where we met, where we were both working this school in Washington, D.C., you know, there was someone on staff who actually had a job as like an adventure coordinator whose role it was was to help us coordinate getting kids outside. And I, I was teaching in the lower school with first and second graders. And so for me, that looked like taking my second graders canoeing. We were having parents drive the students to Rock Creek Park every month where they were writing poetry and taking field notes. And we walked to the local swimming pool where we taught swimming lessons. And for me, it was so exciting, like frankly magical to have part of the learning we were doing be so, so integrated with just being in outdoor spaces and outdoor spaces that were local to our school. We even had like a, a part of the like an extension, I guess, of Rock Creek Park that was right at the backyard of our school. So we could take them out even to build tree forts during during recess. Um, but I know you were you were doing this with students who were in high school and that experience I imagine was different from mine too. You know, when I think about the origin story of how we configured this, it came out of talking about our students doing, at least for me, largely black and brown students canoeing and kayaking, hiking, mountain climbing, like scaling the face of of a flat rock outside. And students would choose their own adventures. So you could choose from different activities. And then that's what you would do during the day. And then we'd have reflection time where they'd reflect on the experience. And what I loved so much about that was that we were still learning I was still learning something. I got to see students be experts at belaying, <laughs> at hiking or talking about a tree or a bird or the pattern of water in the, I'm forgetting the name of the river. 
What was the name of the place? The Potomac. Is it Great Falls? Oh, at Great Falls and the Potomac. Great Falls, thank you. At Great Falls, seeing them as experts. But I, I think what we really wanted to center what is possible, what's possible in our classrooms, but what people are already making possible in their relationships with the outside. And if we we think about the people who first stewarded this land, the land in this country, or were forced to, to steward it or take care of it, it was indigenous people and it was African-Americans. I think that there's something so powerful, especially when I think of my ancestors. There's something incredibly powerful when we think about outdoor education or we think about science education or we just think about education, period, is how do we go back to the origin point of what these original relationships were and how do we live in right relationship with the land but also with each other as human beings we are also a part of the natural world we're not separate from it one of the the beauties maybe of this conversation Erin is is the deep reflection around outdoor learning and what if our outdoor learning didn't mean you have to buy a whole bunch of gear you don't have to have a bank account that can afford that gear don't have to have anything but your body and the ability to be outside that's it that's it and what if we learned from that perspective, using the land as our teacher, using our relationship with the land as our teacher? Yeah, that that idea of like, do I need to have like a, a kit to be outside? I um, like literally just before we started recording, I you know, we always have to close all of our tabs so that these like computers that we are that are holding on by a thread that we record our podcast on can function when we're recording together. (laughs) And, um, you know, as we were doing this, I was closing out like 23 tabs of different comparative reviews of trail running shoes because I have, I have dreams of do, um, of hiking the Tour de Mont Blanc this summer, which is like a, uh, it's a hike that you do in like 11 days around France, Italy, and Switzerland. And it's, goes around the Mont Blanc. And so like, I think like, you know, I, we've talked about this before in this podcast. And then also I've been reflecting a lot it with the folks in this episode is that for me, like a lot of my care practice involves being outside and like a part of my identity and like connection with my family is about being outside because, you know, when I was a kid, we moved every two or three years, my dad was in the military. And part of the way my my dad helped us connect with the places that we lived was by be like bringing my sister, my brother and me outside in these places and helping and like us learning the, like the names of native plants and the animals living there and having this relationship. Like I also like how that relationship is about like getting outdoors versus like being just being outside and having a relationship with the the place where the place where we are and how the ways that there's culture around being, you know, being in nature, <laughs> like it becomes really capitalistic in a way. I appreciate you being so transparent, I guess, like in a capitalist space, like how, you know, how do we relinquish our consumptive relationship? Like what do we refuse or give up in order to be in nature in the same ways that Avon and Alex and the Abenaki elders invite us to be? But we don't have to answer the question now. We can listen to our conversation with <laughs> Alex and Avon. Now we'll hear from Alex Bailey, co-founder of Black Outside, and Avon, a youth member of Black Outside. They're both based in Yanawana, the land of spirit waters, now known as San Antonio, Texas. 
once stewarded by the Payaya, a band that belongs to the Kualatekos Nation. And then we'll hear from Sherry Gould, Madeline Wright, and Rob Wright from the Abenaki Trails Project. We also have poet and tarot reader Jennifer Wong, whose debut collection, Return Flight, won the 2021 Ballard's Bar Prize for Poetry and was published by Milkweed Editions. So stay tuned for a poem from them. First, here we go with Avon and Alex. My name is Alex Bailey. I'm the proud, one of many founders of Black Outside Inc., uh, an organization based in San Antonio, Texas, that reconnects Black youth to the outdoors. Our organization helps oversee uh, a couple amazing programs, one of which is the Charles Roundtree Bloom Project, which even is a part of Pronouns Are He, Him, His. I'm originally from, and I call Ohio home, and I can really connect on the idea that that winter can never maybe end. <laughs> um, and I do not miss the snow that much, as beautiful as it is. I think for me, some of my, like, favorite outdoor memories taking like a a morning just like walk around some of our city parks putting on my playlist uh which can either vary from like hip-hop to gospel music depending on how I feel and uh really just like seeing nature for what it has to offer so my name is Avon my pronouns are she her and I'm an original Bloom member. Well, the Bloom Project is like a program created by Canberra that's supposed to help kids like get away from their problems at home. And so one of my favorite experiences outside is when me and my cousins walk to the store. I mean, it's like a short little walk, but it's always something to talk about. It's always something new that happens. And it's just refreshing to just catch up whatever things I haven't seen my cousins in a long time. say the outside what do you mean like what is that can you define that for us mine is just my aunt my aunt street her house all my cousins outside playing like we'd be on the trampoline we'll walk to the store we'll go to the park sometimes just a normal a normal little family like gathering I guess you could say yeah and I would add to that that outside at least for me is, you know, similarly, it's just this like beautiful definition that I always say like the outside for me always starts right when I walk out of my door. Um, And as much as I love the mountains and uh, I know I'll tee up even later, we could talk about our Colorado trip and everything there, uh, which we have some fun memories of, but outside is just, um, just also a place to find like stillness and peace. And so it doesn't always have to be like, I have to be in some area where I don't have phone service and that's really outside, right? For me, it's it's similar to Avon. Like I, I remember um, outside for me was like walking around the neighborhood with my grandpa um, and uh, he would just like point out every single tree. He was a gardener, <laughs> like knew every single tree species. And so that to me is always like this rec- deep recollection or deep memory of, of outside. For me, uh, it means like not rushing. Uh, Avon can attest I'm not like the fastest walker, even despite my size. I'm six foot two. Uh, Avon, you remember I was in the group in the back, right, with uh, with Ruben and Katie. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, when we were hiking, so I, I, but I'm, I'm, in, I'm intentional or purposeful about that. 
Um, and I think like my spending a lot of summers with my grandfather, who was, you know, at the later stages of his life and, and during my youth was really powerful because, you know, he's not going to walk super fast when he's in his late 70s, early 80s. So I think for me, what I carry with me today, you know, when I'm in San Antonio is unless I'm on like a jog or something, I really just like I don't walk super fast. I just like always take my time and just like really try to just observe, you know, take the time to observe what's around me. And if I do find myself walking fast, I notice I start to slow down and be like, wait a second, I never noticed how big that tree was or like, or something like that. So that's, that's really for me, how I, that what's carried with me from my childhood. So I went to high school in Northern Virginia. So I, I literally, all those images of like, you know, we, you know, when we got older or seniors, uh, Avery, you probably didn't even know that, that I went to high school in Virginia, but uh, we would go to, you know, DC on Saturdays and just hearing like go-go music outside people uh people eating some mambo sauce i know about it <laughs> yeah <laughs> listening to wale so uh even i'll have to play some go-go music for you sometime it's, it's a different feel but it's definitely a very dc thing um so one day when you visit dc yeah <laughs> yeah 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 i'll play it for you uh it's a very dc thing but it's definitely like a vibe i feel like if your family was in you know from dc y'all would be playing it all the time knowing your family but you know, just thinking about the like meaning like the family kind of like history of family ties to the outdoors that we have. And so for me, you know, I do think very intentionally about the fact that like, you know, even in my family sometimes, even I don't know if you get this from your other cousins that aren't in bloom, but like, you know, people are like, oh, black people were like, why are you doing those things? Like black people don't do those things. Right. You know, I think some of that sometimes comes from a place of like, um, this is another friend's reflection. Some of that comes from potentially a place of of actual like kind of like trauma from not from being excluded from so many of these things. So, you know, one example that one of my friends has talked about was like sometimes black people are like, well, we don't we don't be swimming like that. We don't swim, right? But in reality, for some families, you know, it was kind of like this wall they put up probably when we weren't allowed to be at swimming pools. So it's like, hey, if you distance yourself from it and say, that's not something I even want to do because you don't have access, then you know, it kind of softens the fact that like, wait a second, I I'm not allowed to do that. I think about that a lot in the outdoors and being black and, and having access to these spaces now that grandparents, my grandpa, who I walked around neighborhoods with, did not have access to growing up in Alabama in the 1930s and 40s, right? You know, he couldn't just travel freely across the U.S. and feel safe. And still today, there's definitely parts that I don't feel safe in, but I definitely have more access than he did. So to me, being black outside is like one just this beautiful experience of like really reclaiming this space and place in nature which is beautiful and then on top of that like kind of connecting to this like family history of doing things that my grandparents didn't probably have access or ability to do um i feel the same way i feel like because before the bloom project a lot of the stuff that i have done i would have never done i feel like also people do have this but like they have the or this narrative that like you said because they were never brought up around it that they're not used to it so they like when we went hiking a lot of my cousins and my friends like you're going hiking like you're not like you're not you're not supposed to do this you're not scared but hiking it was man that was fun i would do it again yes i was tired and all but like it's some it's a new experience and i didn't at first i was scared to go but when you go you get to see new things it wasn't even about like oh this is not a what black people do i tried it was fun like I feel like a lot of people should try things. So to me, what I get out of the blackness to me is just trying to get to try things I never get got to try and telling my experience to other people. So now that we have access to it, they can do it.
one of the reasons why I started Black Outside was I was at your your school. I wasn't at the high school. I was at the elementary school of your former charter school that you attended. And this is one of many experiences that kind of led to Black Outside. It was definitely a multitude of things. But one of the vivid experiences that I have is I was at the elementary school and I was working with the teacher. She was like pretty frustrated. You know, at the end of the day, I was like, why are you frustrated? She's like, she says, I don't know what to do about my administrator. Like we literally are just doing math all day with these fourth graders. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, yeah, like our kids only get nine minutes outside and that's it per day. And then every, they said she, her words were, we have too much math to catch up on. And so the kids only need nine minutes because they have to do math interventions all the time. I was just honestly flabbergasted, mind blown, whatever term we want to use, uh, like those mind blown emojis, like jaw dropped. I was like, how is that even a humane for a nine-year-old? Like we wouldn't expect adults to like not go through a whole day and not have a nine minute break. And so you're expecting a nine-year-old to do that, one. And then two, I think what just broke my heart was like the school was in a historically black neighborhood. They were literally next to the uh, Carver, George Washington Carver Center, you know, and of course on the wall, they have all these MLK quotes about freedom. And I'm like, this is oppressive. This is like a prison for these kids. And I was like, this would never fly or be allowed. Like, you know, and, you know, I went to a middle-class quote-unquote school in Northern Virginia. Like, they would just never allow this. Uh, and just like that, like really fueled my fire for like figuring out a way, working outside of the context of school systems to just really want to show that black kids deserve these spaces. They deserve these experiences. They deserve to be human and experience nature and that they're not just a test score. They're not just, you know, just a marker on a star test. That's our big test in Texas. Like they are more than that. And I think sometimes our school system just really intentionally and unintentionally just show our kids that, you know, you're really just a number, you know, that's really one of the reasons why I started. And then the other quick experience I'll say is that I was a camp counselor in college. So I got to work as a camp counselor in New Hampshire and, you know, it was a predominantly white camp. It was super affluent, a rich camp, cost a lot of money. Even it costs like back, this is back in the early 2010s. It costs like $14,000 to attend. <laughs> It was wild. And so I don't know how I got the job. It's a long story, but I ended up working there and it was super, it was a powerful experience. It was the first time I had ever been in the mountains, like, like actually stayed in the mountains. I was in a cabin, I was on a lake and got to do all these things that I never got to experience uh, as a kid. And I, I love my experience with my grandfather. And it's kind of like a yes uh, and like, it's like, wow, and kids experience this too. You know, those kind of experience alongside a few others really helped fuel me to be like, look, I really want to start an organization that's going to hit this on the head and say like, Black kids deserve these spaces. And said at the start that I'm one of many founders for Black Outside and just want to shout out collaborating with Kimber to just hold, hold her up and space for her because she was the one that had this vision for starting a program called the Charles Roundtree Bloom Project. Well, my way was like, not saying like it was supporting Camber because in a way it was, but it, but also like, like my mom was a big part because she like, at first I was like, well, I don't know like if I want to do it because going back to one of our previous conversations, we were like, it, it was a narrative going around that it's not a, what black, what black people do mom was like it's trying something new like and so I remember what really made me want to do is when we went to this I don't know remember what it's called but basically we were like gardening like we would just learn like it was just like a whole bunch of like new animals that we were learning about we were learning about new 
like flowers. We just like a whole bunch of different stuff. We just like, I like that we get to take trips around the world and get to different parts and that they take your opinion up on like, what like what you want to do. Like, it's not just like Camber. A lot of people think that just because we're family, I don't know if y'all knew me and Camber, that's my cousin. So people feel like, some people might think that just because we're family that we joined in, but it's not even about like, like her being family. It's about her purpose behind creating the Bloom Project. It was like for people like us who came from like bad neighborhoods. Not saying I had a bad like um, upbringing, but like it was a lot of things that I seen in the neighborhood that I didn't like, and that I wish if I if I had the ability to change, I would. So like her purpose behind that was that was one of her many purposes behind it so I like that and I took it took it up took up on it and it's really fun it's refreshing to try these new things it's like um what's the word I'm looking for I don't know I'm trying to use bigger words so but it was like it just opened my eyes to see the world different and like in a different um like from a different perspective At Miss um, Alex, you were there at one of our recent Bloom Project activities where we went, not out of town, I wouldn't say, but it was like an hour or two away. And yes, I've been around these people, some of the people from that that participate in the Bloom Project. I don't know them, not in a bad way, not saying that I thought they were going to like, you know, like hurt me or any way, but it was always just part of me like, that's like, well, watch out for them, like watch out for them. So I feel like I just, not saying I had no choice, but like I was going to be around these people whether like I liked it or not. So like just being out there, being able to talk to people, like having no choice but to let my guard down because if anything was happening, it was going to be these people that I had to depend on. So I just feel like me just, just giving it a chance and like trust, putting my trust in other people, telling myself, well, maybe it's not what I'm used to because being around a boom project, it's always something that I'm not used to. So I'm like, well, maybe they, like, they, they basically show me like not every not everything is always bad. Some people do bad things, but that does not mean that they're bad people. So that that's how I feel like that trip, I felt like helped me see everybody different. Well, not everybody, but some people different. When we go on the Boom Project, we be like, we don't be having service and stuff. So like, yes, we bring our phones, but we don't get to use them. It just depends on people. Like I used to be so dependent on my phone, like things was in my phone but being I would say being dependent on them like finding different ways to be to like to have fun and to interact with people or to interact not with people but like with with nature like I I've been outside like I've walked around I've been like did things outside but I've never like paid attention to Mr. Alex was saying like the trees and stuff like I've never paid like there was before the bloom project there was not a day like that I would walk outside and be like what kind of tree is that or I wonder like what happened here when I like when all of this was in here what was here before like they the, the bloom project helped me like be more be like more not more free like I was free before but, like it helped me like like be be like just show people who you are like don't hide it I remember my grandfather telling me stories and I was just like, wow, I can't believe you did that, right? <laughs> you know, you did these things and feeling like not just me, but like our community is like giving and receiving that same energy and passion of being inspired by like the new things we're doing or the cool reflections we're having or the places that we go 
or, you know, the walks we go on or just like, you know, the funny things we say and all these things happening in the outdoors is really powerful. And I think that's another thing of reclaiming our identity in the outdoors is we're reclaiming this joy that I feel like the system is it was trying to take from us. You know, that school was taking the, like that I mentioned on the east side was like taking those kids joy of like so many laughs and experiences that they could have probably had at recess in the name of math intervention, right? And so, and I think like the system also is like taking this like outdoor joy that we have or has tried to like, you know, claim this outdoor joy that we have by saying, you know, excluding us from spaces sometimes or showing, you know, you walk into some outdoor stores, you don't see black people on the like posters or anything, right? And so they show us that like, oh, this space may not be for you. But I think what's powerful about our work is that, you know, I feel like we're stepping into this like, like you talked about, like the ancestral piece. Like, I feel like I just like, a lot of times when I'm outdoors, I feel honestly, to be real, I feel the presence of my grandparents around me, feeling like they're like, just happy to see me doing these new things. And I'm glad that our youth are being able to say the same things. And I, my hope is that, you know, Avon, one day if she's a caregiver or even with her like younger siblings, right, is able to like do that also and just continue to pass that on and create the space for that joy of like trying new things and the space of being like, yeah, I can do this and I like belong in this space. Um, Not only with younger siblings, but like, like with my mom and my grandma. When we went to Colorado, my grandma, when we first, when we finally got to Wi-Fi and we ate at that pizza place, my grandma and my mom FaceTimed me. And they were like, tell me all about the trip. Like they, it not only, like I asked to me, another reason why I um, do the Bloom Project because not only do I do it for myself, my nieces and my nephews and my little cousins, I do it for my mom and my grandma because to me, it's like I'm doing stuff they never got to do. So when I go back home and I share my experiences, it's like they get to, to live. Like when I tell them my story, they be more entertained. Like they be more into the story than I even thought the story. Like I tell them a little story, not thinking it was as deep as it is, but they're like, really? wow like like how did this happen like who was out there like they want to know everything because they never got to do it so that's another reason why the bloom, i do the bloom project oh my gosh and even like i feel that so much in my heart like literally because <laughs> that's the say i don't know i never told you this but uh many of the youth is like i actually because my my grandmother's 96 and she still lives uh my, my dad's side of the family they're from the country in north carolina and uh she still has a farm that she lives on and so she's 96, so she can't get out to places. She does not have internet. She does not have a cell phone. She just has like a quartered phone, which you probably don't even know what that is. But <laughs> all that to say, uh, yeah, I similarly, I what I started doing recently is I like print out, I like go like order on Walgreens, all the pictures we take. I'll print out pictures of like y'all and us going to places and I'll send it to her uh, so she could see the pictures. So she'll say, like she'll have physical photocopies and she keeps a whole album of them in her house of like all the places I go and stuff for like Black Outside and y'all in Colorado. So she has pictures of us in Colorado uh, in her house. So one, you got my granny's prayers, which is a beautiful thing, right? But then two, uh, you're right. Like, and I call her and she's just like, oh my gosh, like you went here, we're in the mountains. She's like, and she always mixes up the places, of course. She's like, you were in California. I was like, no granny, Colorado. She's like, oh, okay. But you're right. Like I think doing it and connecting with family. I know my aunties too, like, Love, like when we post our pictures on Facebook, they're just like, they are the first ones to hit like and just like see that. And I, I, you're right. Even like, I think that's part of like, kind of like the ancestry, ancestral family kind of ties to the things that we do is that it's also like really cool to watch the elders in our families, like 
see what we do and be inspired and just like proud of what we're doing because we know, you know, they helped get us to where we are today and we're taking advantage of that. So we were backpacking in the Rocky Mountains. We weren't in Rocky Mountain National Park. We were in like the National Forest, which is just south of there, but it's still the same mountain range. And then obviously like Avon was experiencing, you know, and, and even myself is just like the elevation change. Like we were so high up. And so we started hiking, I want to say at like maybe seven or 8,000 feet up. Uh, and then we ended at 9,800 feet. And San Antonio, I think is only like a thousand feet above sea level. <laughs> So just that air basically gets a lot thinner, you know, when you get into the mountains. So that just made the trip tough, um, you know, challenging. And um, and then, you know, on the way we were having to like filter water because we didn't want to carry so much water because it was a lot of weight. So we had to be intentional about where we stopped. And obviously on the way up, it hailed, which I, we did not expect. One thing you should know about Colorado summer weather is like every day it says it's going to rain and you don't know if it will or not. So we're just like, all right, well, we're going to prepare. We got our jackets and sure enough, it did. Um, but similar to Avon, I think what was so powerful is just seeing I was in the last group. So like getting to the top, everyone exhausted, everyone was tired, everyone was a little, little bit on edge, but like you come to the top and then you kind of like come uphill and then kind of come down this hill at the lake we were at in the mountains. And when you come down, I remember like the sun had just started to come out and it was behind the mountains. Oh my gosh, we did this. We did this. And I think what was powerful was like, it was all, every person in the group was black. All our leaders were black. CJ is black. Like, you know, like this is a group of black people backpacking together across ages in Rocky Mountains. And I was just like, how often does this happen? Felt like that, again, talking about the ancestors, I'm like, yo, we were doing some stuff that's really deep stuff that maybe not many people have had access to do or maybe not have done before in that space as a group just as big as you. Uh, so it was really, really powerful. And I think the last thing I'll say and kind of what Avon, I think, was, was saying in a different way was every time our job is not, we're in the mountains or in nature. Our job is not to conquer the mountains. You know, I think sometimes we're like told, like, we got to conquer this thing. I was like, our job is not to conquer a mountain. How are we going to conquer a mountain? It's been here for thousands of years. Uh, our job is to see what the mountains and nature has to offer us, what lessons can it teach us? And I think, you know, I've always said with the outdoors, I don't like, I don't like when groups say like, oh, we're teaching kids resiliency. Like Avon, you are so resilient. Like so many of our youth are so resilient and strong and like just brave and courageous. And so I think what the outdoors does is it shows you how resilient, how courageous you are, you know? Uh, and it just holds up a mirror almost. And so you like, look how strong you are. Look how like dope you are. And uh, I think like the Colorado trip really did that for so many of our youth and even myself, just to show like how deep and powerful of a program that, uh, we have the honor of overseeing. That's true, because when we got back from that Colorado trip, couldn't nobody tell me anything. I thought I was the man. When I was to school, I said, man, I just hiked the mountain. I can do whatever I want. I was so, I just, I was just so, like, I just thought so highly on myself after that because I did not think I was going to make it. And also, it was my birthday when we went on this trip. So the little, you remember, was it Camp Duncan or something, Mr. Alex? Yeah, Duncan Park. Yeah, one of the, the the ladies who worked there, she, this is why the Colorado trip was personally one of my favorites because Cameron and everybody knew it was my birthday. 
And I didn't want to make it about me. So like, I don't, only my family and like Mr. Alex knew, but Camber made sure like, she was like, she told me like, you're taking the time out of like, you know, it's your birthday. You choosing to spend your birthday out here when you can do it at home and enjoy how you want it. But she was like, she was thanking me for coming. So when we got there, I was not expecting nobody to do nothing for my birthday. I thought it was just going to be like a normal trip. But I got there. They had, we, they sent me happy birthday. We, they gave me a cupcake. We had like nice breakfast on my birthday. It was good. So I like that too. I mean, I think first it starts with like so many more schools, like I said, talking about like, you know, humanizing our black youth. And I think sometimes, many times, black kids, they do one or two bad things. And it's like, oh, no, like, we got to get them out or we got to redirect them or they got to go to um, they got to go to ISS or. Yeah, I think like one thing is just like reimagining, like using the imagination to reimagine how we help all of our youth and especially black youth, like navigate certain challenges. So I think like that's like, you know, the first thing. And then, you know, secondly, it's just I think what was sad about COVID for me, I mean, obviously the national like world suffering that was happening, but I think like from an education sense, I was like, this was COVID and the pandemic was such an opportunity to rethink how we do education because we know it's not working for so many kids and youth. Even just the idea of literally the CDC said, hey, one of the safest places you could be is outside. And I remember talking to an educator and I was like, why don't y'all just like, we're in Texas, it's spring, why don't y'all just like have class outside? I'm not saying every day, but at least a couple of days, I'll probably help. And they're just like, oh, no, no, we uh, we can't do that. And I was like, why? They're like, well, liability and this and that. And I was like, this is what I'm talking about. Like, you know, we're too, we, we just like think inside the box sometimes in education. I think that really limits what's possible for so many black, so many black students. Yeah. And then lastly, I think just explicitly like straight up, like starting outdoor programs. It doesn't have to be taking kids to Colorado all the time. It could literally just be like, you know, once a semester, we're going to go to a city park or we're going to go to a state park and we're going to take a bunch of kids and we're just going to explore and we're going to pack lunches. Y'all going to experience it. Y'all going to take some pictures and we're going to come back. And like, we did that with one school and it was just so powerful for those kids. Like I saw them later that year and they were like, that was my favorite day of the whole year. And we just took them to a, a like a city park that was like 20 minutes outside the city, you know? And they're just like, we never get these experiences. So uh, I think in the education system, we really got to just be intentional about creating these new opportunities for so many of our black youth. I feel like it was like more schools like push for, for us to do more outside of school or like non-educational activities than at my old school idea. We didn't have, it was all about school idea. But at Woodlake, which is my middle school, it was more like they wanted us to be in tune with ourselves and where we came from. So I feel like, not to make it all about like like being Black, but I feel like some schools could take an effort to not only Black people, but like other races to put an effort into teaching them more about where they came from. Now we'll hear from Sherry Gould, Madeline Wright, and Rob Wright from the Abenaki Trails Project. The Abenaki Trails Project is a project of the Kusuk Abenaki Nation in Ndakina, which is now known as New Hampshire and Vermont. So let's hear from them. In Wikiak, Massasikam, Nodziabaznodakad. So I said, Hi, my name is Sherry Gould, and I was born in Peterborough, and I live near Lake Massasikam, and I'm a professional basket maker. But you can just call me Sherry. Hi, I'm Madeline 
Gosling Wright. I live in Alton Bay, New Hampshire. I am a uh, former educator. I was an educator, a librarian at a law school initially for 11 years. Then I went to uh, boarding school in New Hampshire when we moved up here. And then I moved into public schools. And I am very interested in researching and teaching and learning uh, about Abenaki culture and history and how Abenaki people are living today, how we as a people are living today. I am a member of the, a citizen of the um, Nalhegan Abenaki tribe. My name is Robert Wright. I like to be called Bob. I'm a retired teacher, high school teacher here in New Hampshire. I retired from teaching after 25 years at the high school level. I guess many of the same things that Madeline said apply to me. I'm a member of the citizen of the Nalhegan Abenaki tribe and uh, live in Alton and spend my time working on projects like this. It's, I think, multiple ways we use the land and our teachings and these specific sites this area of New Hampshire isn't like super developed. I mean, those of us who have spent our entire lives here, it seems like it's getting way too developed, but we still have a lot of open land and a lot of space uh, where our ancestors did things that are undisturbed that we can go and look at, or if they have been disturbed, there's still between the written colonial records and our own oral history and what the land tells us, the story is still there to be found. So that's what we do. We look at those together with historical societies and whoever else in each community might seem appropriate to partner with. Yeah. So we're just, we're looking at for the history and teaching people about the history, but also teaching ourselves so much of our own history we lost. And so we're relearning our history as we go, as we, we dig out. We spent a whole year, the communities, the four communities got to know us pretty well. And so now whenever people are like writing stories or doing art shows or whatever it is they're doing in their everyday life, they're thinking about the Abenaki, the people that are here before. So we're spending a lot of time, I do, editing other, what other people write about the land to help give it that Abenaki lens, as opposed to the typical, there's plants, there's animals, there's Indians, there's white people. <laughs> and they all disappeared, they vanished. And then the way that community members try to try to be respectful about that becomes torturous for them. And you can just read it in the words. They're like, <laughs> trying to say it in a way that, that feels so awkward because it's not what any of us were taught. It's not what we grew up with in schools. And public schools, Madeline will be glad if I don't get started about the harm I personally experienced from them. And I think a lot of Native people experience and a lot of learners that learn differently. And then I, I think when uh, the presentation that Madeline and I did the last time, what became really clear is a lot of what we do, it works well for me because it's my learning style. And I don't know, it seems to be the way our ancestors always taught. Abenaki people have always learned. It's very experiential, very hands-on and very much so like apprenticeship kind of learning. I think that that's been a really important part of understanding the story and what works well in Abenaki trails and what works for Abenaki people is that kinetic kind of hands-on being really immersed in the environment and learning that thing. Hey, hey, hey. I don't want to hey.
had some um, really great experiential learning opportunities in school, a few, very few and far between, but, uh, but they were powerful and they, they meant, you know, they meant a lot. You know, we didn't have a lot of diagnoses when I was in school. So I was lazy, not living up to my potential, had a really high IQ, but why, you know, blah, 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 blah. So when I first started hearing about dyslexia <laughs> and what and what educators say about dyslexic kids, it's like, oh, that explains it. And I can't spell and reverse things and all those things. But at any rate, in a social studies class where I had pretty much given up on school, we had a substitute teacher come in, she a long-term sub. It was colonial history we were doing, and she could see that I had an interest in spinning wool and yarn. And so she just gave me like, she waived all of my, whatever the class requirements were. And my project was to learn to spin wool. And so we had a neighbor with sheep and my dad made me a, a drop spin. Well, it's not a drop spindle, like the kind that Navajo use that I don't use them today. <laughs> and we lost that one. But anyway, I learned to spin the yarn and worked with my dad making it and and just all and we didn't have YouTube back then right it wasn't easy to learn but it was very experiential and it and it was a way to get really engaged and I think probably it meant as much to me that the teacher noticed and cared and gave me an alternative to just sitting there sinking in um, in an abyss <laughs> that was really powerful. I was a history major in college. And, you know, there wasn't very much taught back then on Indigenous people. And from being in schools, I find there's very, very limited. And especially for the people in this area, I was just like asking kids, for instance, like, do you know the name of the people who lived here before the, you know, the settlers came and do do you know what tribe they were what nation they were and nobody knew that it was the Abenaki so they're not getting it anywhere they're you know I guess even when they're teaching New New Hampshire history I don't even know how much of that they do anymore in the state they're not covering that and there and the other thing that I found out which is part of the big problem is that there are no, there really aren't a whole lot of resources. I was a full-time librarian and I created an ELO, an extended learning opportunity for teaching the history of the local indigenous people. It was also, I was also doing it through Zoom, but it actually worked out very well the way that I had the class designed. I wanted it to be open to everybody. I wanted everybody who took the class to feel comfortable asking questions and having discussions in in the classroom. And I did it, it was all done from an Indigenous perspective. And I started around the Thanksgiving story because so many people by the time, even when they're in high school, they don't get the full story. So I thought it was really important to correct that first thing. We went from there and then we went into New Hampshire and Vermont. We did a walk through the um, cedar bog down in Antrim. There's a, a rare bog with Atlantic cedar, which is very hard to find. Uh, the cedar bogs were very important to the indigenous people because in addition to the cedar that grew there, which was important, uh, you can use parts of the cedar root for building 
birch bark canoes, for instance. There are also ash trees, very important for basket weaving, as Sherry can tell you, and also for constructing other crafted items. And it, the bog is a, a place of medicinal plants and food. And so it wasn't likely that you would find permanent indigenous residents in a bog. Can you imagine dealing with all the bugs? But as a place that only visited to gather materials, that is very a good, very good example of experiential learning. There's also a, a, a fine bog in Bradford, um, also cedar bog, um, but they're they're threatened now in coastal areas because of the rising ocean uh, and saltwater content reaching into the groundwater. So fortunately, these bogs are well enough inland that they should be fine for now. Of course, it would be great to take field trips when you're working with students. It's harder to do now because it's hard, harder to find the money for it now, and also because of everything else that's related to COVID that's going on. Some of these places, I think, could be very interesting for students. When it comes to teaching this kind of material, it's, as you said, you know, experiential learning, field trips and so forth. But experiential learning, when it comes to the Abenaki, is also just a simple fact of living here. Because there are so many Abenaki place names, towns, geographical fe features, everything else. People know so many Abenaki words that they don't know they know because they're surrounded by them constantly. Also, speaking of landforms, the experiential learning lies in living here because everyone can relate to one or more local landforms where they live. And to understand that the Abenaki got around, traveled, hunted, fished by the water and the rivers, the lakes. You can start to see how that works and how they were perfectly suited to their natural landscape. So even if all you have is a town with say, the Kentuckuk River running through it, you know something about the history of that, or maybe the Isinglass River down in the Southeastern part of the state, of course you're going to find artifacts, but it helps you just understand how the people live the way they did, you know? So just being here is, is part of it. When you can't do a field trip, well, what about this? What about that peak over there? Chester Price is an archeologist who mapped out the, the trails, Indian trails in New Hampshire, and like in the sixties. And if you take that map and you overlay it with today's roads, most of our, not our interstate highways, but most of the roads that, that we all live on and drive on follow the same. They started with those Indian trails that just kept getting widened as the settlers came in. But then um, Madeline found this great article by uh, Lisa Brooks, an Abenaki scholar, and it's called Every Swamp is a Castle. And she talks about how the swamps to us were like such a magical place and an important place in our life, medicine, food, our cultural materials, just what we're talking about with the cedar swamps and Bradford Bug. But it was very frightening place for the settlers, for Europeans. And so they really became like, we could get to the swamp and cross it and that stopped 
the settlers. They did not want to enter into the swamp to come after us. So that's where the every swamp is a castle. But she talked about that these paths that we followed were the paths that the moose and the large animals had made, which I still to this day, when I go in my woods, I'll see where the moose and the deer are walking and it's the easiest path to go through. It made me laugh because I got to thinking, oh my God, our roads in New Hampshire were engineered by moose. The waters were our highway. So unless you're in the water and viewing the landscape. So we knew sites like Daryl and I both growing up around here, all our lives, people knew we were in Abenaki. So they would be like, oh, what about this place? Or what about that place? Or, and, and so when we started to explore them, I said, if we get in the water, they're all along the water, almost all along the waterways. If we get in the water and we look at like, especially village sites, from the water, we see that whole perspective. And it was really interesting because things like where the uh, grindstones for the corn, the mortars were found in the ground, there's still corn growing today. So, so much of the paths became the roads that we use today. Uh, the cornfields are still in use today. What we're finding especially is how many village sites, which nobody knows that. That's not in any history anywhere. I mean, you can pick up little bits and pieces out of our local history books, like about how, oh, they vanished into the woods right before we arrived. So you know that there's hints of Native people were here when the settlers arrived. But you hear much more about they were nomadic, they were passing through, they were then that they were village sites. And yet the archaeological evidence, what little has been done and recorded that we're finding is, no, they were living all around here. It wasn't nomadic by any means. When we started Abenaki Trails, Daryl and I chose to first talk to the select board and we started in Hopkinton. So we met with the Hopkinton Select Board and it, we just said, we're from the Nalhegan band of Abenaki tribe. We're here, you know, with the blessings of the tribe to, to just let you know we're doing this project and we don't want you to hear about it from word of mouth or be concerned. That was a point in time in July of 2020 when statues were being torn down around the country. There was a lot of turmoil. And so we didn't want people to be frightened that we were going <laughs> to want to tear the town apart or something. So uh, we were telling them what, what our intentions were and what we were doing. And we weren't asking for anything. But at the end of our talk, we did say, is there anything in particular, once they had heard about it, that they wanted us to focus on? And I apologize, I don't know her name, but your head select woman was just a select board member at the time. And she said to us specifically, I hope you do something with the schools. And what she was talking about was that when her kids were in elementary school in Hopkinton, that they had to go like to the seacoast. And so what she really wanted us to do was to be working. When we look at a town and we develop the history that was there in the town or that is there in the town, that we help the schools to be able to teach local because for exactly what Rob is saying, that the kids can then relate to that. Like Kantukuk, that word comes from Bagantukuk. Bagantukuk, it means not at the place of Nut River or at Nut River. And the nuts have to do with beech nut trees that were abundant there on the river. But it's the same word that pecan comes from, pagan. So it just means nut and whatever the nut is is that it's abundant there. So in Oklahoma, when the natives went to gather 
pecans. <laughs> it was from the pecan tree. Uh, um, that's something we really have wanted to take seriously. And yet, as Madeline pointed out, it's been challenging when she reaches out to the schools to get a response. I find it very, very satisfying for me that we're working on this and we're getting some of this stuff done and we're getting the information out there. And, you know, there are people who are really open to hearing about it. You know, it, it, it's time. It's way overdue. There's something I think about the times that is causing people to become more interested. So we may have, yeah, on the one hand, we may have the CRT movement building. But at the same time, there's this other push from another direction that's wanting to learn more about other peoples, not just, not just the Native population. Uh, and so they're, they're sort of headbutting right now. But the interest, whatever it is, is sort of really mushrooming in just a very short period of time. And I, th I think it's a matter of the word starting to get out that there are Native people here, just like they've always been here. It's, that's, that's, as Madeline said, very rewarding. I think what's brought me the most joy is what I've previously said is, is the ability to finally get the information out there, get people to realize there really isn't that much out there for high school level students for reading material. I mean, there are some great books that have been written, but they're all college level and above college level more. I just think it's really important to get the, in, that information out there to them. And there's stories because there's just a lot of richness in the culture and in the storytelling. So it's, I, it's I, the sharing that gives me, I think, the most joy. I think if I'm right, we could sort of be hitting a tipping point as we work more and more with schools. I mean, I can't count the number of times a student just in offhand conversation, one-on-one -on -one or whatever, would mention the fact that they were Native or that they had Native ancestry. And of course, it's, it's all hiding behind good old British names, but that they would acknowledge it is very encouraging. The other thing is there are students who may or may not identify as Native but at least they know something about themselves. And so basically what we're doing is we're bringing this knowledge, which they may not have at all, back home to them. And it may get them more interested in exploring their own family history. I have a feeling there are a lot more students like that out there than we can possibly grasp. And so it's sort of like, as I said, bringing, bringing the culture back home to them. And that is something which, the prospect of which gives me a certain amount of joy. I really appreciated what Rob said because it, it brought back being a student in Hillsborough and hearing, you know, only about the dreaded St. Francis Indians, the savages that would come down mm -hmm. and do, you know, take Hannah Dustin's baby and smash its brains out on a tree. And, you know, that was really what little bit of local history you got was just that brutal stuff. But then more 
or you got the Hollywood images of teepees and Buffalo. And I remember trying to think about my grandmother in New Hampshire and Vermont living in teepees with Buffalo. Like I couldn't picture how that Western pictures we got of Hollywood fit in um, fit this land, getting back to on this land. And so, yeah, that Rob, that is really joyful. The idea that we can give, give kids like us uh, just a much nicer picture. Well, in my ELO, I had a native student taking it with me. I mean, they didn't know very much of their own history. This person belonged to the uh, Nipmuc tribe. For her project, she did research on her own tribe. But it was just the talking and the things, you know, just it, it, it's just the surprise that people have when they hear the other parts of the stories that they didn't hear when they were growing up in school. There's a much different version. There's certainly a different version than the way I was taught. (laughs) But I mean, I just, I remembered even when my daughter was in school, she's 26. So that wasn't that long ago. And she was taught that, that they, Thanksgiving, they had a nice dinner and blah, 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 and all this sort of things. And then the Native people were so nice that they gave away their land and they moved on their own to another part and they went to all these nice schools and everything. So it's that kind of stuff (laughs) that, you know, is still happening. You know, and it's just not true. I mean, you know, the story's all wrong. In education, we talk about teaching functional subjects. So you're not planning on specializing in math, right? But you do have to have a certain amount of functional math skills to get by in the world. I think something I'm starting to understand is we need to have, everybody should have a a degree of functional literacy with Abenaki. Not that you need to speak the language, but you need to have some background knowledge so that you have a basic understanding of what is going on in the place where you live and what has been going on for thousands of years. And part of it has to do with understanding the geography of your area or even the, uh, the culture of the Abenaki people. I mean, going through school, you learn about all kinds of things about about white people. And when you think about it, they've really only been here for 400 years, whereas the Paleo-Indians started moving in as soon as the glaciers started moving out. (laughs) And that's a really long time ago, 13,000 years ago. Part of it imagines envisioning what the land was like when it was all old growth forest. Then you really start to appreciate things. Where we live here, just just five miles outside of Alton Bay. If you go down and see where the Merry Meeting River runs into the lake, which is the center of Alton Bay, basically. And you can imagine, stand there and look down the whole length of the bay, which is huge, and imagine it completely surrounded by trees, very tall trees. And that is one place where you can stand and look out across a a big open body of water, all the way down to where it empties out into the lake. And you can't see across the lake at that point. 
and right behind it, perfectly framed, are the Ossipee Mountains. And they said it was an important meeting site for the Native people. I can understand why, having seen that. Not only that, but you can stand there and see people traveling by water towards you. You can see who's coming at you. And uh, it, it's just, again, it's part of the functional understanding of the area that we really need to, to have. Thank you, Avon, Alex, Sherry, Madeline, Rob, for sharing your stories with us. You know, usually right now we would get into our reflection, but I did want to make sure to clarify a couple of things. Sherry mentioned Daryl a few times, and Daryl Peasley is one of the co-founders of the Abenaki Trails Project. She also mentioned the head select board person in Hopkinton, um, and at the time of that, that person was Sabrina Dunlap. So Monet, what's coming up from you after these conversations? I'm so full of gratitude as well. This was a learning experience, I think, for Aaron and, and I both. And we all have orientations toward the outside, period. But I just think this was so expansive in how we can use the outside to unschool ourselves and unlearn the idea of what the outside is foreign to us in the educational sense, but also just in the human sense. I think I was really struck by just so much of the overlap between what Alex and Avon from Black Outside were saying and what Sherry, Madeline, and Rob from the Abenaki Trails Project were saying. I think some of the overlap that I heard, certainly this idea of joy, what happens when we have Black and Native people who are able to be outside, I guess, without like the touches of white supremacy. Like what do, what do Black people get to do? What do Black people get to think about? What do Black people get to experience? And when I'm looking, listening to the Abenaki elders speak, they're asking us to also reckon with memory and how we think about place now and, and what that place is to us as much as what that place was. And by understanding the, the history of a place, we're also understanding our own history. Also thinking about Avon, who use the outdoors, the outside as a way to understand more about the people around her, she in her, her community and her neighborhood. And she kind of complicates community because she's like, you know, people aren't bad. They just sometimes do things as, as a product of their environment. The, the intergenerational part is so important. Her grandparents, her, her grandmama and her mom, and her cousin were the people who encouraged her to be outside. Even as some people were like, black people don't do this. What are you talking about? Why are you going outside? And, and she did anyway, and she's so transformed, but is constantly bringing that knowledge and those experiences back to her home place. Yeah, that, that really stood out to me too, both how, you know, Avon and Alex talked about, you know, Avon's sharing like photos and stories after they went on their Colorado trip together and Alex prints like prints photos to send to his granny. And, you know, in the same way, Rob talks about teaching Native youth. And I think what's sticking out to me is this intergenerational interactions and just how essential that is for us to be like learning with each other and learning from each other. Yes particularly when you're talking about learning from each other and he was talking about the, the money or the cost attached to doing a field trip. And even though Rob was talking about this in connection to going outside and, and knowing just what the land around you is doing and um, using that as an opportunity, I was just also thinking about 
when you can't do a field trip, why can't we be talking with elders like the Abenaki elders who have so much knowledge, who were educators themselves, who have spent time, you know, surviving school, navigating the carcerality of school, but can come back in and can be invited in. And that that's maybe also a way of, of embracing an intergenerational space. Like what would a, what would a classroom look like if at every grade level, we had elders in the space with us as teachers, as facilitators, as learners, what would that look like if, if everybody's learning and everybody's able to be a teacher? You know, when Avon talked about like, just how much she learns from just being outside. And like, you're saying, like, literally just be outside. Like, like it doesn't have to be um, this greater expedition. Like, it's really just like being outside and learning from a place. And Rob talked about that, that being, just being in New Hampshire, just being in the space, just being in the water, mm-hmm. just being in the forest, just being in a mountain, just being in the place where you are. And I think this is yes, for, yes. for any place. Alex and Avon were also talking about this, like who gets to learn about their history in school? Who gets to use the outdoors to learn about their history? Alex was, you know, named a really transformative experience where he actually goes to New Hampshire to this, right. this camp where he's a camp counselor and is facilitating learning. And is like, yo, I, this is amazing. And I want other people who share my identity, Black folks, to be able to experience this. And in some ways he he was, right? But then he's proposing this program at a school um, and they're like, no, you know, we can only afford nine minutes outside. They have to be learning these literacies. And I think we forget that literacies are not just reading and writing and doing math or knowing the periodic table, that literacies are also these processes of world making. And so when Alex is talking about this, this time that he's spending with his grandfather and the connections he's making with his granny, his grandmother um, on this farm, it's allowed him to dream. When he spoke about that, like I taught my first year teaching, I taught kindergarten in, in a school where our kindergartners didn't go outside. Like I taught kindergarten in first grade, like we didn't have recess and like in so many contexts recess is seen as like a break it's a break or it's like a reward yeah or 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 I'm using it as a carrot or a stick if you don't do what I need you what I want you to do you're not going to go to recess and these are the kids who need it or like we even say like like I mean, and then also I'm like, all kids need it. Like everyone needs it. Like every, like we, like, like true, it's true. not just even a break. And I think like so often we're like, we need them to, or even have like movement breaks or, or these kinds of things so that they can be, we say like, so they can be made available for learning. But I think like what I'm hearing also from you, Monet, is like that being outside is learning. Like, it's not that like we go outside to help ourselves get our brains and bodies ready to focus when we get back in the classroom. I think what's emerging for me is that both of these kinds of learning are really important. I was also thinking about how Alex and Avon also reconfigure what what is considered like acceptable things to do outside. So when we ask them, oh, what do you like to do outside? You know, you know, I like to go to the corner store with my cousins and how being outside, like if we read any of the outside magazines or, or publications that have to do with outside, it's all about travel. It's all about hiking. Like for them, it's just like, I'm taking a walk and I'm, I'm going to put on my music and I'm going to head out. And I don't know if I ever, before listening to them, considered just the things that I, <laughs> I take a walk every day and I have my music on. 
Like if I considered that being outside, but it is, that's usually how I'm outside or, <laughs> or I'm walking my dog mostly who I share with my partner, Mar- Mara. And um, how special those, those moments are. Like Mara and I fell in love in these just walks with Mosley outside. I was really struck by the moments with the Abenaki elders where they talked about going to the, um, the select board meetings and they were really adamant. Like we're not trying to tell, tear down statues. And this was in light of other groups advocating for the removal of of statues that were connected to enslavement, connected to Confederate history, connected to white supremacy and anti-Blackness. And I was wondering how that struck you. Yeah, something that uh, that emerged for me, and I think the context of this, this conversation I want to share is that we spoke with each other in, just at the end of December of 2022. And this is just in the heels of Governor Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, and the GOP-controlled legislature, they snuck in onto the budget what they called the, the right to freedom from discrimination in public workplaces and, and education. And um, the language in it has been is really vague. And part of it is forbidding teachers from teaching, quote-unquote, divisive concepts, in particular related to gender and to race. I think, you know, something that really came up for me when, when they were saying this was that like, in a way it felt like in order to go in and advocate for sharing indigenous stories and to collaborate and cooperate with local historical societies, local governments, which are majority white organizations and majority white institutions, I'm curious about them like distancing themselves from from a movement towards a movement of abolition, a movement towards justice, a movement towards liberation, and maybe wonder about like where there could be opportunities instead for for collectivity. What came up for you? I mean, same. I mean, I think that's it. I also think that it was really I was really curious about how language was being used and you know, just being mindful of how we use language, like critical race theory is, I think we need to call it what it is and understand like so much of this is the work of black feminists, period. And that critical race theory, which which is a, a theoretical framework that we use to understand the intersecting spaces of race, class and gender can be applied anywhere. And I just think that conservatives, I'm saying conservatives, but we also have some people on the left who have also, you know, appropriated this, are using this language to justify, don't say gay bills, legislation in my home state of Georgia, that means that you can't talk about race, (laughs) or, or you're not supposed to be talking about race when you're teaching in the curriculum. I have to say, I know that for so many of us who live in these states, and who might be on the front lines, that it can feel hopeless. But I think that that's what they want you to feel. And as a Black person who learned African-American history at home and from elders in my faith community, from elders who were friends of my parents, from my own parents, from my grandparents, it wasn't made available to me in school. But I know what I know through the reading that I was encouraged to do, the stories that I heard from other folks. And so we understand that this legislation is not going to stop. <laughs> it's not going to stop the Abenaki elders from 
continuing to craft curriculum. Avon and, and Alex Bailey are in Texas, a state that continues to pass laws to try to outlaw abortion, to try to outlaw the discussions of race, discussions of class, discussions of, of that use like the frameworks of critical race theory to engage critical thought in schools and, and out of schools. I think that I agree about coalition building. It's super messy work, um, but it's I think it's worth it, um, particularly when we're able to listen to each other and borrow and exchange um, tactics, exchange knowledge. And so I feel incredibly hopeful, but I think that I know that one of the conversations that came out of the, the statues coming down was like, oh, we shouldn't concern ourselves with that because you know, we have more structural changes to, to encounter. And I, I wanna push back against that a little bit because in my home state of Georgia, like I, uh, whenever I go home and my homegirl Shay is there, we always go on long walks. And what's so interesting to me, this is a state where like you turn a corner, there's a battleground. And where there's a battleground, there's a plaque. Where there's a plaque, there's a monument. Um, there's a place that we're asking people to remember a thing. And I think the, that this, the statues are a part of structural change because I grew up in a state where I went to these parks and I read these, these words, a black girl. Now I had counter memory, right? I had other people speaking to me about what was really happening from the perspectives of formerly enslaved and enslaved people. But the ways that I'm being asked to, to remember what happened around the civil war is, is not entirely true. So I, I think that the statue piece is important. And what would it look like if people who were involved in and pushing against memory by removing statues teamed up with the Abenaki elders to support them in their work. And the Abenaki elders were in conversation with people who were wanting the removal of these statues too. And so I'm, I'm just wondering how that coalition building can work and how we can sort of like engage in the messiness of these conversations at the same time. My name is Jennifer Huang, and I will be reading the poem Departure from my collection called Return Flight. I want to share that this poem is one of the first that I wrote from this collection. I wrote it in college when I was taking one of my first workshops in poetry and was just beginning to fall in love with poetry. And so when I read this poem and when I encounter it again, I just remember how curious I was about poems and lines. And there is a content warning for this poem, content warning for threats of violence and familial violence. Okay, this is Departure. Departure. We pick wet flowers and mix them into the tire indents where our parents' cars should be. This is flower stew. We play pretend. I am the robin and she is the blue jay. We play reality. I am the tire and she is the car. Her parents no longer sleep together and neither do mine. At dusk, we part. I run up the stairs. My mind is always faster than my body. My mother sees the scrapes on my knees and tries to beat me with a wire hanger. It never reaches flesh. 
Still, I can never walk past a sharp corner without bruising myself. I climb the monkey bars at midnight. Sorry doesn't mean a thing. Never laugh too hard. Always think ahead. This is the bedtime story my father reads to me. I recite it by memory as I squeeze my frame through the bars, climb on top of the rungs, then stand. I laugh too hard, then jump down. Welcome to the exit ticket where we are closing out. Thank you so much to Alex Bailey and Avon from Black Outside, but also Kimber and the other co-founders of Black Outside who are just bringing love, ways of being and doing with youth in an intergenerational space in San Antonio, Texas. Also, gratitude, gratitude to the Abenaki elders from the Abenaki Trails Project, Sherry Gould, Madeline Wright, and Rob Wright. Drop in your knowledge for sharing your experiences around what place and space can mean and and has always been. What are you grateful for, Erin? Well, we are entering for, well, as we're recording this, uh, it's my, it's a Sunday night before I go back to school after my spring break for six weeks left of my school year. And this has been one of my more challenging school years for me. Just this week, I'm feeling a lot of gratitude for for my husband, for my partner, Elliot, who has been walking with me, particularly in the last couple of weeks with just a massive amount of grace and patience, just like seeing me in my my most stressed out self, just making space for that, trying to meet me where I am. And (laughs) And saying quite often, like, Aaron, how about taking a walk? Aaron, why don't you get outside? Aaron, maybe you should go for a run. Aaron, maybe you should like stretch a little bit, do something to get like, get away from this and like, let your body move through this. This has been, this has been a hard year for me. And I think, and, and you know, I know that he carries that too. And so I just feel so much gratitude for him right now for the ways that he has really seen me and met me where I am. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. We love partners and friends and nibblings and aunties and kin who remind us to just go outside. (laughs) This is Mother's Day and I'm really grateful to my mother and all of the, the ways that she took my brother and I, my brother and I are 18 months apart. So much of our childhood was spent outside. Uh, my mom would just take us walking. We'd go to the, to Fernbank and, and walk there and like go to the planetarium. And I love looking at the night sky. So whenever there's like an event in the, in the night sky, I try to be outside and look and just made me comfortable as a little black girl, like being outside, like this is a place I should be too. And I'm just thinking about my two grandmothers who are not with me um, in this world, but are very much with me and with all of us in spirit. I'm just grateful for them. I'm grateful for them for surviving, for loving me. And so much of my time with them was connected to the outside. Like I want to have chickens when I get a house because both of my grandmothers had chickens. And I remember my brother and I, we were playing outside at my grandma's house and, or, or we would go there in the summers and spring breaks. 
And we would leave for hours on end. And we would be like, oh, we need to get, get back to grandma and granddaddy's house because we'll get in trouble. And we would get back and my grandma would have food ready. <laughs> and and um, that's where we were supposed to be. So grateful for them. And of course, all of the love and gratitude to Anna Almore for advising us on this episode and helping us to shape our thinking of the outside of indigeneity and for connecting us with Alex Bailey from Black Outside. So we have a couple of questions that we're leaving you with. You can slide into our DMs on Instagram at Dancing on Desks. You can also send us an email at dancingondesk at gmail. You can also leave us an audio message if you go to our website, dancingondesks.org. We'd love to hear from you. So final questions. How do we learn from the outside? How can educators take their cues from Black and Indigenous placemakers, elders, ancestors, and youth in undoing our consumptive relationship with the outside? We look forward to hearing from you. So thanks for being with us today. Thank you, everyone. We love you. I love you, Erin. I love you, too. We'll talk with you. Peace. Hi, y'all. I'm Anna Elmore, a PhD candidate, an auntie, a lover, a friend, and a collager living in the occupied territory of the Anishinaabeg and Potawatomi also known as Ypsilanti, Michigan. Dancing on Desk is a podcast created by storytellers and educators Monet Cooper and Aaron Thessing. Mara Johnson and Elliot Wilkes created our theme music. Today's production could have never happened without our hive mind. So much gratitude to them. Check out our Dancing on Desk fam online at dancingondesk.org and on Instagram at dancingondesks. And share your stories with us there. Talk with you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go.
boy. A turtle. <laughs> My turtle said Babu. You know when's really a great time? When you can hear birds and stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, around sunset. Yeah. But also sunrise. Oh. You don't think sunrise? Yeah, I'm talking about the time of Ah. At around sunset and creep back to the early evening, all the birds start to go home back here. And they roost here? They be talking loud, girl. They be chatting. So I'm just saying, if you want some bird sounds, you can record. Is this where they roost? Ha, ha, ha.